Welcome to Dead Drunk Uncle. I'm your host, Steph, coming at you by myself today, because I am a rebel loner. But, no, actually, um, my co-hosts have lives and careers and families. So, you know, (laughs) I just decided to go ahead and do one myself. Now, please consider yourself warned, as always, that I will be using foul language. I will be referring to marijuana usage, of course, medically legal, but whatever. Um, And I'll be talking about murder, violence. It's definitely needing trigger warnings of those things. I'm going to move this microphone. (laughs) So please consider yourself warned. And there you have it. Now, before I get into uh, what we're going to be talking about today, I wanted to start out with this really super amazing motivational thing that I just read. It's called The Circles of Synergy. Communities thrive by creating what we like to call circles of synergy, which is an approach to economic development that focuses on creating homegrown, continually renewing business leaders, civic leaders, and job creators, which starts with supporting entrepreneurs in their earliest stage of development. Now, is that the world's longest run-on sentence? Possibly. But let's go on to discover these circles of synergy. Number one, engage existing civic and business leadership to gain buy-in on co-working as a strategy to create homegrown, high potential, spelled H-I dash potential, economic clusters with a minimal amount of taxpayer investment. Number two, integrate co-working into an innovative economic development strategy focused on the dispersed digital nature of 21st century jobs. Number three, support local entrepreneurs by giving them the resources and support of a well-run co-working facility, creating a bond between the entrepreneur and his or her community. As businesses grow, they hire and contract with local talent and existing businesses, further strengthening the economic ecosystem. And number five, entrepreneurs who feel an emotional connection to the community, become the next generation of civic investors and business leaders. Now, if that sounds like a bunch of random words and rhetoric that's pretty useless to you, I'd say you're not alone. This is that kind of like doublespeak that always triggers me cult or MLM, which is kind of the same trigger that I get, you know, for both of them because it's... um, predatory in a way that feels like it's motivating you to do something great. Like if you've ever watched Parks and Rec, that was it Kaboom or Kazam or whatever, where the guy came in and they build a playground in a day. Kaboom it. I don't even remember if that's what they said. And I just watched the episode last night. But anyways, that kind of thing is what it sounds like to me as these (laughs) I think there's circles involved here, but I think there's more talking than synergy. So before I get into all of my 
ideas on this, what you might want to know, what are this, these circles of synergy from? And what I was reading that from is a website called Clustered Develop, sorry, ClusteredEconomicDevelopment.com. And this is a website by Clustered LLC, I believe. <laughs> Clustered LLC is what it's looking like on this website. And if I go back here into the leadership spot, I'm on their website right now. <laughs> Under leadership on that website, you will find Megan McKisson is the founder and managing consultant of Clustered LLC. Prior to experience at Clustered, Megan served as the director of OPO Startups, one of the most successful co-working communities and innovation districts in America. Megan is also a contributor to Entrepreneur Qu Quarterly and was the founder of a successful health and wellness business. No, I haven't found that business, but I, I read that and went, tell me it's Herbalife. And then underneath Megan is listed Dustin McKisson. This is the name you might recognize. He is partner and consultant at Clustered LLC. He is a two-time top voice on LinkedIn, where his columns have been read by more than 10 million people. He is also a columnist or contributor at Inc. Okay. <laughs> CNBC, VentureBeat, CNN, and Entrepreneur Quarterly, where is a noted expert on Heartland Innovation. That's how it's printed. Dustin has a master's degree in public management, an MBA, and bachelor's degree in public policy. So Dustin McKisson is the gentleman who we have seen so many posts in the last couple of days about how he believes that his parents were serial killers. That is certainly an attention-grabbing headline faux show. Um, where do I even begin with this? So this obviously interested me because I thought, my God, <laughs> my story is nothing compared to this guy. I have to know more. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Oh, never mind, that's not it. Okay. <laughs> I thought someone had replied to my comment, but they didn't. So I'm going to get on here to his Facebook. There's a few Facebooks. There's a Dustin McKisson. There is, there's two Dusty McKissons. The most recent one, um, the URL is, it has Dustin.McKisson, but he has his name listed as Dusty. So I think that's maybe the difference there. Uh, but that profile is the one where he shares his information and his evidence about how he thinks that his father was the murderer of Amber Takaro and possibly the suspect in the Ketty Cabin murders. I think there's more that he specifically says, but I mean, there's so much to unpack here. <laughs> I am just jumping right the fuck in. I really should be making this more organized and planned out into episodes, but like I have been going through and taking all these notes and it's like 
Oh my god. I, I have to start the episode now. Because I can't even figure out what I even think. Because as much as I'm getting like MLM, cult, weird shit, vibes from all of this, I'm also not really getting bad attention vibes from it. So I really want to come at this without, like obviously I'm coming at it with a lot of judgment, but I mean, I don't, I don't want to come out and say he's full of shit or he's a hundred percent true or I think that there's probably this is probably a very complicated story to unpack and that's what makes stories interesting which is kind of upsetting because then it's like but I mean this is fascinating and he's this is not some I mean he's putting this out here for our consumption I can speak consumption. So, like, I, you know, ugh, it's, it's complicated as is everything in true crime, right? Because, at least I think anyways, the true crime fans, they're not fans of the crimes. It's the justice and wanting to find the justice and honor the victims and get answers and help and also learn so that you can help protect yourself better. So anyway, <laughs> that's kind of something that is always a little tick that I have, like, is it even okay to talk about? Because I certainly want to be respectful. But I feel like with him putting all of this, all of this out here, this is, okay, I think he's tagged someone else in this. I don't know who Dylanger McKisson is. Sorry, I'm kind of going back and forth. I was opening his Facebook page so I'd have it handy. Um, I don't know who this person is. And it doesn't look like they have anything to do with it. Okay, but what I started looking up, what was and I haven't even gotten to the twin brother that deeply yet. But the things that bothered me let me go back in here. I wanna go through the post that he made so we can kind of address some things as we go through it. Because this is just how I've been going through things and I think that's just how you have to present it. I'm not gonna package it up and, okay. So, the first page that I think is the one that everyone has seen, and there's more before and after, but the main one um, is an article featuring a picture of his dad side by side with a um, composite sketch. <laughs> Uh, this was posted yesterday at 9.49, so on the 6th at 9.49. To all our new friends, uh, we are, oh, he's posting it with Megan, that's his wife. And it says, to all our new friends, we are sharing this information on LinkedIn, where I have 103,000 followers. That is the first MLM cult thing. 
to humble brag about your following. It's not even a humble brag, it's just a flex. Listen to me, I try to talk in words that the kids used a few years ago so that I sound young. Okay. I'm one sentence in and I'm already stopping everything with my editorials. Okay. This is the first time I'm sharing this story on this platform. So many of you are already familiar with some of this, but please feel free to share the article below. And if you scroll to the bottom, you will see a picture I haven't shared yet on here. It is a picture of an apartment building Megan and I lived in between 2005 and 2007, and an apartment building connected to my twin via a series of leases signed in my mother's name after her death. That I just caught something I didn't even catch before. Um, we're gonna have to circle back to that, but just make a mental note of him saying that his connected to his twin in his mother's name after she died. His apartment is a near exact replica of our apartment. It is the most terrifying thing I personally have confronted in this journey and, and was the inspiration for this publicity blitz. I saw this apartment complex for the first time last Thursday night after uncovering the connection between my mother's identity and the complex during our investigation. Again, this specific photo is at the bottom of the article, but we will be sharing everything on both platforms and have a new video coming out tonight that will do a better job introducing this story. I'm trying to keep up with friend requests and messages as fast as I can, but the volume is extraordinary. Thank you for your love, blah, blah, blah. The reason f uh, for now everything will be published on this page. The reason for that part of the credibility of our claims comes from the strength of our family and the love we have for each other. I want you to get to know the heroes too. Okay, that's just the introduction to the article. I want, oh God, there's too many people who liked it for me to go through and see. Yeah, there's like 3,500 likes, so I can't go through and see. It's. You know, what I would like to do is see who liked it and see if it's any of them are his family members. Um, I have gone through his Facebook and his wife's Facebook to see if anyone is specifically mentioned as a family member. And I didn't get through a lot of posts to see, you know, if, they, if anyone was tagged. But just from what I did scroll through, I didn't see anyone tagged and they didn't have anyone listed named as family under their friends. So, you know... But with him saying his family supports this and that they all feel the same, not that that's necessary, because look, my family doesn't believe any of the shit that I believe, <laughs> or at least most of it, I guess. But, I mean, it's, something's not, and you know what, maybe it's kind of, it's like with police that there's holdback information. Maybe there's stuff that makes this make more sense that we just don't know yet. Because you don't know what you don't know. And I don't want to be smug and asshole about this because whatever the truth is, there's something going on and everybody deserves a little kindness and grace. So I'm not, I'm not meaning to be a dick here. I'm really not. I'm just trying to figure out what the fuck. And it's kind of relaxing to be focusing on something else 
<laughs> the people that I know involved in my shit trying to research that. It's like a brain vacation to research somebody else's shit, quite frankly. So. <laughs> okay, and now let me open the story here so I can kind of go through that. Now this was published yesterday the 6th on LinkedIn where he has 103,000 followers. There's me being a dick. I'm sorry, it's just a weird thing to say in a post where you're just trying to get answers about a murder. You know what I mean? Okay. Many of you know me from my professional and business writing and LinkedIn. The message I'm about to share has nothing to do with it. In 2006, my father, while high on crystal meth, told my wife and I that I had once had a sister. Comments my father made to me on a phone call in November 2019 convinced me that my sister had been harmed rather than placed for adoption. While searching for her, we made an incredibly disturbing discovery. Everywhere my father went, people disappeared or were murdered in very specific ways. This pattern of tragedies follows my father from the late 70s to 2019 when we began pursuing him. For the last two and a half for the last two and a half years, I have conducted an intense investigation into my family of origin. Our discoveries have been dark, horrifying, and often hard to explain. We now have strong reason to believe my father is an active and prolific serial killer. For decades, he was aided by my mom, a former paralegal in the 90s for a prominent homicide defense attorney. We believe my father has still been active, at least through 2019, and that he may be aided by a just-discovered twin brother I didn't know I had until last week. My parents split up in 2000, and my mother passed away in 2014. She had her own criminal record, having been charged with felony first-degree arson in December 1983. That case included the temporary involvement of the FBI and was one of four fires my parents had in two homes on the same street in Rupert, Idaho, between 83 and 87. In one of those fires, investigators found my little baby, my little brother's baby clothes soaked in accelerant. My family and I are rolling out the story, including sharing the evidence we found in a series of videos and content published to my personal Facebook page. And there's a link. And he says the things that he's focusing on are still unsolved quadruple homicide that occurred in Northern California in April of 1981. The composite sketch of the suspect, okay, is this the Ketty murders that he's referring to? Fuck. It's hard to even get through this list. So, let's dig in. This was the Ketty Cabin murders that he's referring to in Northern California in April of 1981. So I'm going to open my 7,000th tab here. And I'm sure everything that comes up is going to be about them, which is annoying. <laughs> oh, it's not. Okay. So this is an article from allthat'sinteresting.com, the Ketty Cabin murders inside the grisly quadruple homicide that still haunts California. Um, All that's interesting checked by Eric Hawkins. It doesn't say written by, but okay. Um, between April 11th and 12th, 
1981, Glenna, Sue, Sharp, and three others were brutally killed in the resort town of Caddy, California. To this day, the murders remain unsolved. Why do I think that it was solved? Okay, on April 12th, Sheila Sharp returned to her home at Cabin 28 on the Caddy Resorts in California from the next-door neighbor's house. What the 14-year-old girl discovered inside the modest four-room cabin instantly became one of the most macabre scenes in modern American crime history and has come to be known as the gruesome Ketty murders. Inside cabin 28 were the bodies of her mother, uh, Sue, her teenage brother, John, and his friend, Dana Wingate. The three had been bound by medical and electrical tape and had either been viciously stabbed, strangled, or bludgeoned. Sheila's sister, 12-year-old Tina Sharp, was nowhere to be found. Stranger still, in the adjoining bedroom, the two youngest Sharp boys, Ricky and Greg, as well as their friend and neighbor, 12-year-old Justin Smart, were found unharmed. They had apparently slept through the entire massacre, which had unfolded mere feet from their beds. That's fucking terrifying. The Sharp family had just moved into Cabin 28 the year before, um, she had divorced and brought her children from Connecticut, friendly with their neighbors. The night before the murders, Sheila slept over at a friend's house down the street. John and his 17-year-old friend Dana had hitchhiked to a nearby town of Quincy for a party and returned sometime later that evening. Tina had briefly joined her sister at the neighbor's before returning home to her mother, two brothers, and one of the neighbor boys, Justin Smart. When Sheila returned home early the next morning to find her mother, brother, and his friend bloodied on the living room floor, she bolted back to her neighbor's house. Her friend's dad retrieved the three unharmed boys through their bedroom window so they would not have to see the scene. Um, and then there's some details we don't need. I'm just skipping through details, guys. Okay, and then this next entry underneath that one, or it's not an entry, sorry, it's another section of the article. <laughs> the botched investigation into Cabin 28 murders. The sheriff at the time of the murders, Doug Thomas, and his deputy, Lieutenant Don Stoy, were not initial, initially able to discern an apparent motive. Worse. The strangest thing is that there is no apparent motive. Any case without an apparent motive is the toughest to solve, Stoy recalled to the Sacramento Bee in 1987. They didn't see forced entry. All the lights had been shut off. They did recover an unidentified fingerprint from a handrail on the back stairs. Well, that's good. The three youngest boys were not only untouched but unaware of the event, even though a woman and her boyfriend in the cabin next door awoke at 1.30 a.m. to hear muffled screams. Look, that doesn't mean anything. I have slept through a fire alarm before, and for some reason, I feel like teenagers won't sleep through anything. So, I mean, I don't know. And if they went off to a party and hitchhiked off to a party and then came home, and I mean... I don't know, I'm just speculating, but maybe they were intoxicated or something. I mean, then, you know, they wouldn't wake up. 
Okay, however, the three boys initially claimed to have slept through the massacre. Ricky and Greg's friend, Justin Smart, did later say that he saw Sue with two men in the house that night. One reportedly had a mustache and long hair, and the other was clean-shaven with short hair, but both in glasses. One of the men had a hammer. Justin reported then that John and Dana entered the home and argued with the men, which resulted in a violent fight. Tina was then allegedly taken out of the cabin's back door by one of the men. Allegedly, a lot of potential evidence was collected at the scene, but because this was pre-DNA testing, very little helpful information was found at this time. Sheriff Thomas called the Sacramento Department of Justice, which then sent in two special agents from their organized crime unit. Not homicide, which struck many as odd. Hmm. Uh, the first two suspects that they had right away were Justin Smart's father and the Sharps' neighbors, Martin Smart, and his house guest, ex-convict, Joe Bo. I don't know how to pronounce this, Budebe, B-O-U-D-E-B-E, who was known to have connections to organized crime in the area. Well, then that, I suppose, makes more sense. Both men had been, a had been seen in suits and ties, behaving oddly in the bar the night before. Okay. Uh, Martin Smart, oh, he lost a hammer. After that, he told the police. Uh, it was another three years after that is when Tina was found, ugh, about 30 miles from Ketty, in Plumas County. And that made it a quadruple homicide. Ugh. The Butte County Sheriff's Department soon received an anonymous call asking, I was wondering if they thought the murder up in Ketty, up in Plumas County a couple of years ago, where a 12-year-old girl was never found. I was wondering if they thought of the murder up in Ketty, up in Plumas County a couple years ago, where a 12-year-old girl was never found. I don't know what that means. I mean, as far as the phone call, I'm saying I don't understand what that part... I don't know. Okay. Meanwhile, Sheriff Thomas has resigned from the investigation three months in and took a job at Sacramento Department of Justice. Um, yeah, opinions, evidence that they think was overlooked. The tape of the anonymous tip regarding Tina was found sealed in case files untouched by Plumas County Sheriff's Department until 2013 when the case was reopened with new investigators. Huh. I wonder if Dusty McKesson can account for that phone call or if he recognizes the voice. Anyway, um, in 2016, Gamberg, who's a special investigator, located a hammer in a dried up pond that they think is the murder weapon. Furthermore, Marilyn Smart, who is Marty's wife and the mother of Justin, had left her husband 
on the day of the murder discovery. Afterwards, she sent a letter and it's to the Plumas County Sheriff's Department that said, I paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through. Great, what else do you want? Is there a thing, is there, like, I can't read or something? She left her husband on the day of the murder discovery. Afterwards, she provided Plumas County Sheriff's Department with a handwritten letter sent to her. Oh, <laughs> a letter sent to her and signed by her estranged husband. Okay. So the bottom line is, um, Marty allegedly sent Marilyn a letter that said, I paid the price for your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. Great, what else do you want? Okay, now I understand what they're saying. This letter was not treated as a confession, nor was it followed up on at the time. Even though Marilyn admitted in a 2008 documentary that she thought that her husband and his friend Bo were responsible, uh, the sheriff contradicted this and stated that Marilyn or that Martin had passed a polygraph. And ooh, it was later confirmed that Martin is close with the sheriff. Okay, these stories are. most widely accepted theory is a love triangle between Martin, Marilyn, and Sue. It was believed that Martin and Sue were having an affair and that Sue was supposedly counseling Marilyn to leave her husband, who she said was abusive to her. When Martin discovered this, he enlisted Bo, his friend and known mob enforcer who had lived with the Smarts a mere 10 days before the Ketty murders, to take Sue out of the picture. This would account for Marilyn leaving her husband the day after the murder was discovered. Um, both Martin Smart and Bo Budebi are now deceased. New DNA evidence has pointed investigators to other suspects. This is the part who may have had a hand in these murders and who are still alive. It's my belief that there were more than two people who were involved in the totality of the crime, the disposal of the evidence and the abduction of the little girl. Hagwood said, "We're convinced that there are a handful of people that fit those roles who are still alive." So what the actual fuck? So they have DNA evidence. And this was published October 18th, 2021. God damn it. Now that makes me think that he's telling the truth. And that they are about to announce that or something. That the DNA evidence maybe matches his father. Because Dusty McKisson's father is still alive. So, now I'm even more confused. It's probably because I have this lovely vape. Okay. Now that we know um, a little bit more of the background of the Ketty Cabin murders, 
God, that throws me off. I didn't expect. Look, I want to follow the evidence <laughs> wherever it goes. I just, I'm, every separate tab I have open on my computer right now is a different tab where my mind was blown and my mind was changed. Okay. Now, I have my note cards here. So what I first wanted to do, oh wait, I'm going to go back to his Facebook profile. Okay, and when I'm going back, the post right before the one with the article where he says, wishing a happy Father's Day to my dad, a man we now believe is a serial killer. The post right before he posted that to Facebook is, on behalf of Megan and me and the rest of our family, thank you for your engagement in our story. We have a lot to explain, but we have suffered through an extraordinary decades-long attack on our family at the hands of my father and a man we believe is my just-discovered twin brother, to say nothing of the countless number of victims impacted by my family of origin. Personally, I've become close with several family members of victims, and they are at the center of what motivates us. We strongly believe my father is a prolific serial killer and an outright monster. My mother was a serial arsonist before her death in 2014. We have proof of both, and my mother was actually charged with, first, with felony first-degree arson. The evil they committed is almost impossible to understate. Beginning tomorrow, we will release a series of videos discussing their crimes and demonstrating the extensive evidence we've collected. We will also answer some of the questions. He'll go through every DM, but it might take a few days. I, I'm laughing because there's like thousands and thousands of people on here, so I can't imagine he can get through them. Um, this isn't just a story about my father, my family of origins crimes. It's a story about the resilience that comes from an abundance of love, the family Megan and I have created, and the razor-sharp horror that comes with the complete absence of love, the family I grew up with. We believe it is an important story and message to share, and are glad that you all want to be a part of it. I mean, and then he said he ripped a hole in the in his father's trailer because he was on an adrenaline high from just watching Top Gun 2. So he, that's where he found like dentures and cell phones. Definitely weird things that he found in this trailer that um, allegedly belongs to his dad. And there are pictures posted on June 3rd. He had posted, obviously, this has been a tough week, so I decided to do something about it. For years, my dad kept a trailer of family keepsakes in the desert west of Phoenix that he would not let us see. And this is where he said, you know, after he went to see Top Gun 2, he decided to go out there. And what he found were a set of teeth, and let me clarify, that was dentures, an athletic protective cup, eight cell phones ranging from the 1990s to relatively recently, a map of the western United States, a travel book of Idaho, a book on how to learn Arabic quickly, eight medical textbooks, and boxes associated with the phones. As someone who has gone through 
a creepy AF family members things. I mean, mine was after death. Everything looks creepy. And honestly, in this case and in my case, everything is creepy. Here's some dirty old Motorola, Motorola phone that is... I would say circa 97 is my guess, because it's like a small brick. This is not a cell phone, this is a, uh, so this is definitely a cell phone. It's not a cell phone, this is a Sanyo Sprint, it says. Um, it's just a cordless phone, not that that makes a difference, but it's a handset for a cordless phone. An LG flip phone, I would say 2002. Listen to me say 2002. It's, um, no, I'd say maybe a little later than that. It's kind of similar to a Motorola phone that I had. I don't remember what model it was. But looking at this flip phone, um, it's similar to the first flip phone I had that was a Motorola. This one's LG. Um, and that would have been like 02, I think. Ooh, this is a really cute silver flip phone. Um, I think, listen to me, this is a cute one. This is a Verizon silver. Oh, everyone had this phone too. This is from right around that same era, I would say, is the last one I looked at. Maybe a little newer. Um, but these should still work. Yeah, there's another silver flip Verizon. Early 2000s, it looks like to me. Singular, singular, not singular. That's the medicine I used to take. And then an iPhone, I think. And then there's the Idaho. There's the map. Vest pocket Arabic. Keys to pronunciation. Basic sentence patterns. It seems like a kind of book you, it was just, if you had no idea what you were doing and you wanted to be able to try to understand something, I don't think it's like, a course in learning Arabic. Not that that makes any fucking difference. Um, and then here's boxes for these phones. Honest to God, someone posted a comment. A lot of older people keep their old cell phones in the boxes that they came in. God damn it, I feel so targeted right now. I don't even know why I have them. I feel like it's something you're just supposed to keep. I think I have boxes for phones I don't even have anymore. Do I still have my pink Blackberry? No. Sorry, I got distracted. Okay. Oh, and then these are the weird medical and health encyclopedias. I don't think that's necessarily weird. I think someone who doesn't go to the doctor or something would, you know, that makes sense. And, and the phones seem like maybe he's just saved his older phones, except for... You know, some of those seem to be from around the same time, so that seems like changing pretty quickly, but I don't know. That doesn't mean anything. And there's a picture of the trailer out in the desert. <laughs> someone wrote, keep out in chalk on this. Okay. <laughs> that... 
maybe it wasn't written with chalk, but it looks like it was written with chalk, and that, I mean, and, and they're the desert, so there's no rain, so I guess it wouldn't have washed off. I don't, whatever. It's da dangerous, it says keep out, and there's some dentures, and a cup. Okay, and we're back into the phones. Okay. So for what it's worth, that's uh, the evidence, as it were. Jeez, I can't get back to where I was now because I'm old and I keep my cell phone boxes. <laughs> I can't get out of this. Get me out of here. <laughs> okay, finally we got out. Okay. Um, and now in that post, he also tagged, besides his wife, Megan, uh, someone named Dillinger McKisson, who I don't know who that is. Um, I have no idea. I can't tell. He just posted 13 hours ago, changed his cover photo to God does not change the condition of a people until they change their own condition. Okay. His profile is a picture of presumably his children. <laughs> An explanation for Nessie. And a super cool picture of Freddy Krueger smoking a joint. Badass. I love it. Doggy. Okay. Whoever Dillinger is is cool. Um, Inuit Coeptis. I don't know what that means. Some Latin word. It's just cover photo, so like he's got his profile not totally locked down, but let's see if there's any albums. Nope, just profile pictures and cover photos. Okay. And I don't see any, you know, it doesn't show family or anything like that, but because I'm not friends. So, I, I mean, I don't think he says who that is, just the way I run an investigation. I like to check out who all the players are. So, the post before... Oh, wait, 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 wait. Yes! Okay. So, as you scroll through the comments underneath his post god there's so many i can't even see where okay this is a post from two hours ago today so the seventh tomorrow morning i will share a comprehensive timeline of my father's and my mother's life as well as the first video there's been nothing since oh because that's today he says he's gonna do it tomorrow okay and he this is where he talks about okay i'm gonna have to go through and read this to you too I guess this whole episode is just an introduction. <laughs> okay, these photos do a better job of explaining how complex. In 1989, my family moved to an abandoned farm home outside of Logan, Utah. Ooh, I wonder if it was a, a modern farmhouse. If Chip and Joanna Gaines were there. It was the first modern farmhouse that's where it starts that's where it ends in logan utah <laughs> it had no running water i want you to remember that it had no running water and was one of the six homes or apartments in three states we lived in that year 
The home is photographed here in essentially the same living condition it was in 1989. Um, this is the first place I can remember living, and I revisited the home last spring. When we lived there, I was not allowed in one room. <laughs> Today that room has a very ornate and odd painting of a dragon's head on the wall. For some reason, the painting of the dragon's head makes me laugh. Sorry. It just does. I don't know why. Prior, the prior year to this, so 1988, we were homeless and living in a tent in Washington State. In 1991, his dad got a job as a tech advisor in Salt Lake. And in 93, he was traveling around the world for that job. They said he went to 59 countries between 93 and 99. The first international trip was to Akaba, Akaba, I don't know, Jordan in March of 93. And during that trip, God, I didn't get into that part yet. He and his co-worker he was traveling with, Brad Jones, <laughs> took a side trip to Egypt. I wonder, I don't know. They're pretty close to each other, right? Let me look at a map, okay? You guys, you need to know that I don't understand anything about geography at all. Like, you could tell me anything, and I would dumbly believe it, because I just, I can read the facts about it, and my mind just cannot comprehend. Okay. Map of Africa. Countries. Well, I could buy the map. Okay, now I know where Egypt is because I had to do a project about Egypt in the second grade. You heard that right, in the second grade. It's over here. Oh my God, I clicked right on it. I'm so excited. Okay, sorry. Now where's Jordan? You guys, I'm be so embarrassed when I can't find Jordan on a map. And I'm not going to cut this out. In my defense, the writing on this map I'm looking at is incredibly small, even when I've zoomed in on it. Okay. Oh, my God. And all these places are very tiny over here. Yeah, okay. Look, I'm just going to Google <laughs> the distance between them. Okay. Distance between... Jordan and oh my god someone else is doing it between Jordan and Egypt okay 675 kilometers it is not close it would take a bus 19 hours and how far is it by car does it say 400 now this has 493 kilometers and it would take 9.86 hours. So somewhere around between three and 500 miles. Oh, no. <laughs> around 300 miles, this next one says. Four hundred ninety-three kilometers, 306 miles. That seems to be the most consistent the uh is that the mean or the median you know whatever the most frequently occurring in the results ouch 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 okay sorry guys i'm i'm getting like cystic acne 
and it's fucking painful, and I am too old to be getting this shit. Okay. So he went on a side trip to Egypt, which would have taken at least most of the day, is what it looks like. On March 15th of 93, his dad is photographed with an unknown man that may be one of the bodyguards he offhandedly mentioned traveling with. And Mr. Jones, this Brad Jones guy, is photographed on the same day, March 15th. And on the same day, his dad takes an odd photo of a bus. It says, you can tell by the photo that the bus, not the Great Pyramid behind it, is the focus of the picture. Or it was just an extra picture. Like, I don't know. Someone mentioned me in a comment. Okay, however, something doesn't feel right. No one goes from homeless to Cairo, Egypt that quickly. <laughs> but the day after... Okay, wait, sorry, I skipped a paragraph. Okay, so the, on March 15th of 93, they have these pictures taken of him the maybe bodyguard and Brad Jones um, and some buses. And then the next day, his um, dad is photographed in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Um, and he takes a photo of the entrance, the bus loading area, a bunch of stuff, the museum. And um, sometime that day, an explosive device went off that damaged four of the buses. So that's certainly upsetting. And then he, that's where he goes on to say, how did you go from homeless to Cairo? Additionally, this credit card application taken from my parents' 96 federal bankruptcy filing states that verification of my father's employment requires calling Brad with no last name this listed. Okay. Um... You know, and then he has um, the photos um, that he says are Egypt, March 6th, 93. Okay, March 16th, 93 is the date on the photo, but isn't that the date that it's developed and not the date it's taken? I don't know that they would know when they're developing the photos what date it was taken. Okay, this is why I have 12 tabs open. Has the printed date on a an old photograph mean the day it was taken or developed? <laughs> Machine printed dates on photos are the date the print was developed, not the date the photo was taken. So excuse you, I have to make a comment right quick here. The date on the photo is the date it was developed, not the date it was taken. Maybe there is a mix-up. I'm not accusing anyone of shit because I, I don't know that I think that this is shit. I think 
I think there's something very worth investigating here, but I do not know what it is. And then there's a picture of Brad Jones, July 22nd, 1953 to January 20 or to January 18th, 2019. Well, let's look this up. Brad Jones. Okay. When does it say he was born? I just read it. In 53. Oh, that's a different one. Okay. Um, I need to add in the funeral home, which says Russen Mortuary Bountiful. Oops. Mortuary Bountiful. Oh my god. Is this. Fuck, it's a real obituary. Okay. So. Brad Jones, July 22nd of 53 to January 18th of 2019. Let's see. There's people who signed the guest book. Let's see who these people are. Um, Michelle. Oh, I, I won't say names out loud. Sorry. I worked with Brad in our Tri-Ward Cub Scouting Committee. He was a gentle giant, an amazing mentor. He was wonderful to work with. Um, I'm going to check the obituary here and see if it, what it says, um, what information is in here. This, okay. He, oh my God, that sounds awful an aortic dissection at the University of Utah Hospital and heroic efforts were made to save his life but God called him home oh my god an aortic dissection that's incredibly painful listen to me like I know that <laughs> but for some reason I know that okay he was married in 1975 Went to BYU, had two kids. He was an accountant. The majority of his career at Campbell International. He was a master builder. He served in the LDS Church. That could be why I'm getting cult vibes. 
that there's an LDS. I am very sensitive to LDS vibrations. I am so not kidding about that. <laughs> um... Okay, so I mean, as far as work, it just says the majority of his career through Campbell International. Which I think lines up, to be perfectly honest. Oh, that's in here. <laughs> they have posted the obituary. Wait, that's okay. It's not the same thing that I read, but I mean, it doesn't matter. And then there's a picture here on again back to Dusty's post. Oh goodness, I'm going to be oh. I earned so many points. Uh, I am heading to one hour, so this app is going to stop me. So I will stop this recording and pick back up right after these messages.